Welcome to Adoption Roundtable, a place to encounter the latest adoption research, policy, and practice in an accessible way. This is a space for adoptees, adoptive families, birth families, and adoption professionals. I'm Dr. Emily Helder, a clinical psychologist, researcher, and professor at Calvin University. I am also the co-editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Adoption, along with Dr. Alicia Marr and Dr. Gretchen Robel. In season one of Adoption Roundtable, we'll be having conversations with the authors of chapters in the Handbook of Adoption. They are top international scholars in a diversity of fields, and together we'll talk about their work and what it means for understanding adoption. Hello, I'm Dr. Emily Helder, and I'm here with Dr. Danielle Godin Decoteau, and she's a visiting uh, lecturer at Mount Holyoke College in the psychology and education departments. Her research focuses on race, ethnicity, and culture, internalized racism, transracial adoption, and Asian American mental health. She, along with Dr. Patricia Ramsey, co-authored a chapter in the Rutledge Handbook of Adoption entitled Transracial Adoptees, The Rewards and Challenges of Searching for Their Birth Parents. So thanks so much for taking some time to talk with me about your work. Thank you, Emily. I'm honored to be here. So with your chapter uh, being about transracial adoption and, and the experience of search, I wondered if you could say a bit about how you became interested in that area of research and how that's played out over time. Um, yeah, so, so I am um, a Korean adoptee myself. Um, and um, I started um, grad school um, and had not a lot of interest in adoption um, until I took a class on it. Um, and, and once I took that class, um, I started um, thinking and having questions about my own adoption story, um, thinking about my, my birth mom, my Korean mom as, as a person and not kind of like this background figure um, that predated my, my actual life. Um, and um, so I think as that identity developed a bit, um, my interest, my academic interest in searching developed, um, as well as my personal interest as well. So um, there's been a lot of um, connections there. Great. So your chapter focuses on uh, talking through the research that examines experiences um, of transracial adoptees, especially as it relates to searching and perhaps uh, establishing contact with birth or first family. And one of the themes that I really saw running through the whole chapter is that there's quite a broad spectrum of um, desire and interest to search among transracial adoptees. And I wondered if you could give us a bit of a picture of uh, the different perspectives along that spectrum. Absolutely. Um, so there, there is quite a big spectrum. Um, and I tend to think that um, we have a tendency to, to view searching as a spectrum that goes from like, no, I don't want to search. Maybe I have some interest. Maybe I have more interest to, I really want to search and I'm going to conduct it. Um, I think perhaps, though, um, a, a, a different way to think about it is um, not as a spectrum that necessarily goes from low interest to high interest, um, but more so as, as multiple spectrums. Um, one um, that has to do with 
with motivators um, for a person to want to search um, and one um, having motivators um, that would that would prompt the adoptee not to want to search. So there's situations um, in which there's a lot of reasons um, the adopted person may not want to search. Um, for example, um, I don't want to hurt my adoptive parents. Um, I don't want to deal with the emotional turmoil that might come up from a search. Um, and at the same time, there could be very few good reasons to search. Um, so, you know, it's not really like I have much of a connection to my birth culture, so why bother? Um, so for these folks, I think um, they, they would be toward the, the lower end of um, the spectrum, like probably not going to search. Um, but that, that, um, that decision it has been examined. It's, it's somewhat clear um, in their desire to not search. You also have folks um, kind of in the opposite scenario. Um, so there might be a lot of reasons motivating search interest. Um, for example, I've always wondered if I have biological siblings um, or um, I wanna know my medical history. Um, and then not really any big reasons why they wouldn't want to search either. Um, so, for, so for those folks, their, their interest is going to be higher. Um, and um, again, that, that higher interest is, is clear. Um, well, I think where it gets more interesting is when, we're, um, when there's somewhat of a, a dissonance between motivators to search and motivators not to search. Um, so for some folks, there might be no explicit reasons why they don't want to search, um, but there's also not a lot of reasons to search either. Um, so while these folks might also look kind of um, low in the search interest desire end of things, um, it's more from, from an indifferent um, attitude towards searching um, or a, an unexamined um, attitude versus the folks who have, have thought about it. There's reasons to not search. There's no reasons to search. So they're more clear. Um, I think where it gets really interesting um, and, and where a lot of folks might find themselves is um, when there's ambivalence. Um, so when there's a lot of reasons why someone does not want to search, um, maybe they think, you know, I don't have any good chances of ever finding my birth family or my first family. Um, but then there's also a lot of reasons why they still want to. Um, for example, um, I want to know more about my story. Um, I want to have some clarity on, on why I was relinqu relinquished. Um, and so um, in terms of um, working with a therapist um, or working with someone who's supporting, it's, it's helpful to kind of consider those um, um, multiple aspects of it. Yeah, that's so helpful to frame that in that sort of approach avoidance, like both both spectrums. Thank you. Um, in in thinking about the folks who um, do have that motivation to search, that that um, aspect of it is a little bit stronger for them. Um, your chapter also talks about both larger social cultural contexts in which that that's occurring, as well as some more individual processes, which you've, it sounds like you're kind of starting to describe a little bit. And I wondered if you could say more about how some of those um, micro factors and macro factors might impact their uh, search process and how even those might interact with each other. Sure. Um, yeah, in the chapter, we talk about um, Mueller and Perry's framework for thinking about search interest. Um, so considering those sociocultural norms, um, normative individual factors, and then what we call psychological factors. So in most cases, um, the, the kind of um, glorification of biological connectedness and 
um, the way in which um, people and media tend to romanticize birth family searches, um, those might motivate um, transracial adoptees to want to search. Um, at the same time, um, for some adopted um, individuals, sociocultural norms about family might also make them reluctant to search. Um, so for example, um, not wanting to play into the existing narrative or emphasize dissimilarity with their adoptive family. Um, I think it's really important to understand the motivations behind searching and not searching. Um, so an adoptee um, may have similar attitudes towards search, um, but for vastly different reasons. Um, in relation to individual factors, um, searching for birth family can be a way of um, understanding and, and really making meaning of one's life, um, their self, um, and their identity. Um, in addition to general de identity development, um, I think when we're talking about transracially adopted folks, um, racial and ethnic identity um, might be particularly relevant as well. Um, so um, a transracial adoptee's experiences of growing up as a person of color um, in a white family and oftentimes white community um, may motivate, again, or demotivate um, search interest. So um, for example, um, adoptees' individual responses to racial isolation um, or not having a solid understanding of their birth culture, um, perhaps misplaced assumptions about their race and culture. Um, all of those things are, are reflections of both racial and ethnic identity. Um, and they're also inherently connected to, to the larger sociocultural contexts of race, ethnicity, and culture. Um, Individual adoptees um, also have um, personal interests um, and social groups, which I think matter as well. Um, so um, a transracial adoptee who um, has grown up in um, a diverse community with a racially and ethnically diverse friend group might feel differently about searching um, than someone whose um, support systems are predominantly white. Um, given that, that searching for birth family can be seen in the context of like a larger search for identity. Um, I think exploration of birth culture and country um, could motivate search interests again, or satiate them depending on the individual. Right. If we think about international adoptees in particular, um, you know, when they move into this, um, you know, this pathway of want, deciding to search and, and getting started with that, um, I, I would think that there would be some additional barriers for, for them. And so I wondered if you could talk through what you've heard in terms of resources that are available or approaches uh, that where that's been successful, um, and especially thinking about how that might have changed recently with technology changes in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, especially. Yeah, so um, unfortunately, to my knowledge, um, there is not like a, a single clearinghouse of adoption search related resources, um, although that would be really cool. Um, regulations, technology, resources, all of that stuff is, is changing so constantly. Um, that being said, um, in the chapter, we talk about some um, suggestions um, for folks who, who want to conduct a search, um, particularly um, internationally. Um, so um, as a first step, it makes sense to start with um, the adoption agencies, um, both the domestic one um, and the one abroad. Um, so see what information is available. Um, for some 
um, adoptees, uh, a kind of pre-step to even that might be um, to have a conversation um, with their adoptive family um, on what information they have, um, because there may be cases in which those conversations haven't happened yet. Um, homeland trips, um, those are um, accessible to both adult adopted folks as well as adoptive parents who have um, young adopted children um, or adolescent adopted kids. Um, Homeland trips are usually um, with other folks who are adopted as well, um, and you can visit major cultural landmarks, um, as well as have like more of a personal touch too. Um, so maybe it's visiting um, each person's orphanage um, or abandonment location um, and, and reunification assistance if that's possible. Um, I also want to mention um, there's um, particularly in the Korean adoptee community, um, quite a few grassroots um, adoptee founded and run nonprofit organizations that help with searches. Um, so Goal, um, Global Overseas Adoptees Link, um, is an example um, for Korean adoptees. Um, they do homeland trips, um, amongst other things. Um, they provide support for Korean adoptees who are um, searching for birth family, um, as well as um, post-reunion support, um, and then a whole wealth of other great um, resources, translation services, um, help obtaining dual citizenship, um, et cetera. Um, to your the part of your question about um, shifts more recently, um, I think it's, it's so interesting and, and so important um, because the internet, um, social media and DNA technology um, have changed the searching landscape um, in, in, I would say, significant ways. Um, there's a wealth of resources online. Um, so people are finding relatives by Googling, um, by looking on Facebook. Um, there's also, um, ways in which social media has connected adoptees with other adoptees who are at various different stages of their own search process um, who can help offer guidance. Um, more recently, um, DNA has become a big thing. Um, so home um, testing DNA kits. Um, there's um, a um, adoptee initiated um, and led nonprofit called 325 Camera. Um, K-A-M-R-A, um, whose mission is to reunite um, Korean families who have been separated by adoption and other things um, through DNA. Um, this, I would say, is, um, is a huge breakthrough um, because um, it makes reunion possible um, for adoptees who might not have had other options in the past um, because they were lacking solid records um, or whatever context made it difficult. So that's I would say a real game changer. One of the things I really appreciate about the chapter is it helped add a lot of complexity to narratives about possible outcomes about searches. So sometimes the way they're portrayed in the media are just these such simplistic narratives. Um, and so I wondered if you could say uh, more about really the range of possible outcomes uh, when, when there is success in the search in terms of establishing con um, contact and, and uh, reuniting. Um, you know, what, what is that range? What kinds of things predict where people are going to fall on that range of outcomes? Mm -hmm. So that range is vast, um, perhaps even infinite. Um, I'm not familiar um, with a substantial literature base in terms of um, predictors of possible outcomes, um, although that would be a really interesting thing to study. Mm -hmm. um, 
but but I do think um, to your point in terms of like this this huge range. Um, um, searching um, and reunification um, is not necessarily a straightforward look and you'll find your first family and everyone lives happily af ever after at the end. Um, and oftentimes that's the impression that people might have because that's how adoption and search and reunification is talked about and portrayed in the media. Um, and so in our chapter, we were really trying to um, open people up to like, you know, there's a whole realm of po possibilities. I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit, but for some adoptees, search might not necessarily lead to reunification in the first place um, for various different reasons. Um, but if contact is established, um, then it might not look like how the person imagined it looking like. Maybe it's the, the kind of teary warm embrace at the airport um, that you see videos of, um, or maybe it's um, sitting on Zoom and emailing back and forth through translators. Um, something else to consider too is um, um, what are the expectations um, and the hopes um, on, on both sides? Um, so is um, contact going to be a one-time thing um, or is it ongoing after the initial reunion? how much of a relationship um, do folks want? Um, and that relationship um, extends beyond um, just the adoptee and um, the, the first mother or the birth mother. Um, so um, if there's um, reunification with um, a birth father, um, there also may be siblings involved um, and an adoptive family too. Um, when an adopted person has a child, is that child their first family's grandchild? Um, so, so what is the nature of the relationships? Um, how often are we going to communicate? Um, and what are the expectations too? Um, particularly for international adoptees, these expectations might vary by culture um, and, and things come up. Um, um, for example, like what happens if um, a first family asks for money? Um, there are complicated situations in which um, the parties might have to, to negotiate um, travel, translators, um, logistical aspects too. So I guess um, to, to, to summarize my, my long-winded thoughts about that, mm -hmm. um, I would say there's not a lot of research on it, but, but how prepared um, and open the person is in terms of potential outcomes probably plays a role um, in predicting how well the reunion goes. Um, I'd also imagine that what happens at the reunion uh, makes a difference as well, um, as in addition to um, alignment and expectations um, about what the relation looks like afterward too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, for adoptees, those, those cultural expectations and barriers um, probably contribute to the outcomes. Yeah, oh, that's so helpful. There's a couple things in there I'd love to pick up on. Um, one is where you mentioned, you know, sometimes there can be a search and then for a variety of reasons, you know, they're not able to establish contact, maybe lack of information or uh, first, you know, family has passed away or, you know, even an unwillingness of first family to establish contact. And I'm wondering how, how you've seen adoptees uh, cope with, with those experiences, what, what approaches seem um, most helpful in those circumstances? 
Yeah, so search attempts that don't result in what the adoptee um, was hoping for can be really, really tough. Um, and it happens, um, it happens quite frequently. Um, so the, the likelihood of uh, quote unquote successful search attempts um, depends on a lot of things uh, like where the adoptee is from, how old they are, um, the circumstances around their relinquishment um, and, and more. Um, so it, it can be helpful to provide that context um, both before and during the search process for adopted folks. Um, I talked to a friend who um, is also an adoptee um, and works at one of the major adoption agencies. Um, and, and in addition to providing that context in terms of like sometimes um, searches don't lead to reunification, um, he also said that it, it's really important to provide validation. Um, so you are not alone. Um, knowing this um, and knowing that there are other adoptees in similar situations can sort of um, relieve like a psychological burden, um, he described it as. Um, he also um, noted that um, some adoption agencies um, offer support, guidance, and processing for adoptees um, who, are, who search and are unable to establish contact. Um, adoption agencies also might have um, good leads in terms of finding adoption-focused um, therapists. Um, a, a final point that I want to add on here too is that um, sometimes I think it can be hard to tell um, if and when contact is unable to be established, um, especially with the, the social media um, context and advances in DNA technology. Um, reunions that weren't happening before are possible now. Um, and also circumstances and people change. Um, so, so first families who are initially unwilling to establish contact might change their mind. Um, other um, birth family members might decide that, you know, if mom doesn't want to establish contact, fine, I want to establish contact with my sibling. Um, and so, so reunification goes beyond um, um, the, the birth parents um, and might look differently. Um, I guess um, the take home point here is that things change. Um, and I say that partially um, as a hopeful thing, but also recognizing the reality that um, many adoptees uh, may not be able to establish contact the way that they, they hoped or initially pictured. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and one of the things I'm sort of hearing from you now and also picked up on in the chapter is that it's, it's really helpful to think about this search and contact and reunion as really not a one-time event, uh, just like adoption isn't, you know, a one time event and then um, done. It's, you know, a lifelong process, a, a long-term experience. And so um, how, how do you see this whole navigation of search reunion experiences as more of a lifelong or developmental process? Yeah. So meeting is not necessarily the end. It might be for some folks, um, but for others, um, it could be the beginning. Um, so again, it, it's so important that adoptees have some idea of, of what they're hoping um, a relationship may look like. And then again, openness that it might not look like that. Um, as much as um, adoptees um, who conduct searches can prepare themselves um, for potential outcomes, there's a lot of um, unknown factors that they can't control for too, um, like the hopes and expectations of, um, of their birth family. Um, I think that um, 
once reunification is made, um, relationships um, can build over time and be lifelong um, if that's what um, everybody wants um, or they may not. Um, so regardless of um, whether the, the relationships themselves are lasting, um, after contact and or reunion, I do think it's significant that the adoptee has new information about their beginnings, new information about their first family. Um, they also, um, if contact was made, have some experience of what that initial contact was like for them. Um, so, so these things alone can be significant aspects um, in terms of um, how adoptees are making sense of their, their narratives, um, their narratives about their adoption and, and their life in general. Um, and I think over time, these um, potential relationships or, or meanings about these relationships um, may change, um, especially as other significant life milestones happen. Um, so um, when adopted folks um, have decided that they want to start a family of their own, um, when they are navigating um, intimate relationships, um, and also um, when loss occurs as an adult. Um, I think we, we tend to talk about loss um, quite a bit when we're thinking about adoption from, um, from a younger developmental perspective. But, but as adoptees get older, um, other losses occur in life. And so, so making sense of that in the context of the earlier losses um, may come up. Right. Well, and that leads so well into what I wanted to ask you about next is um, I would imagine it's so helpful for adoptees working through this process to have um, practitioners that and the uh, support of, of folks who are, uh, you know, adoption competent and um, your chapter. And really the, my favorite part of your chapter was actually the advice to practitioners. Personally, as a practitioner, it was so helpful for me to really read through and think through some of the advice that you had there. But I wondered if you could say a bit more about, you know, why, why you think it would be so helpful for transracial adoptees who are even in the considering a search or doing a search or even post post-search, um, why having a practitioner who's adoption competent would be um, helpful in that process? Um, I think the short answer to that is that um, practitioners who are not adoption informed um, are people um, who are subject to the same sociocultural norms and assumptions that everyone is. Um, those norms about family, about biological connect connectedness, um, race and racism. Um, therefore, um, even the, the most well-intentioned cl clinicians may have stereotypes um, because of all of the misconceptions about adoption um, that exist in the world. Um, for example, um, um, a clinician may um, romanticize what search and contact could mean for the adopted person um, or potentially pathologize the desire to search or not search. Um, another um, way in which it could go is that um, um, a clinician might um, not think about um, or um, dismiss the role of adoption related experiences and feelings um, in the, the person's life. Um, or they may overinterpret the impact of adoption too. So I guess um, I think 
the things that we were trying to really drive home in the chapter are one, um, be aware of the socio-cultural contexts um, that we are embedded in, um, particularly about racism um, for transracially adopted folks, um, as well as adoption and family in general. Um, and, and it's helpful to facilitate conversations about this, um, perhaps even with um, adopted family as well understanding the role of these sociocultural norms um, in search motivation um, um, could be particularly important. And then validating and normalizing search interest or lack of search interest or wherever the person falls, whether it's somewhere in between, um, encouraging um, adoptees to, to explore their own personal motivations um, is it are the motivations related to other social emotional developmental needs or goals um so so really kind of making sense of that um and understanding that interest may fluctuate over time um to my knowledge i don't think that there are any um adoption informed um therapies or competent competency credentials um that being said, I, I think that like to be quote unquote adoption informed is to, to have a balance of um, knowing that there is um, a literature out there that exists um, and referencing that research um, um, to kind of have a, a frame or a starting place. Um, but then it's just as important too to understand that particular individual client um, and their specific context. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that's so helpful. Yeah, we have a couple other um, chapters in the handbook for folks who are interested in adoption competency to kind of explore that a little bit more. So that that's a thread that we hope to pick up a little bit uh, across the handbook, definitely. That's so exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for spending a bit of time talking about your work. It's so um, helpful. I think uh, understanding the adopted adults experience is really um, such a growing area and an important area of research. So I was glad to both talk with you about it and then also include the chapter in the handbook. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us at Adoption Roundtable. Please subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. We love to hear from you and have conversations about your reactions, questions, and experiences. We'd especially appreciate feedback if you have topics or questions that we could address in future episodes. You can find me on Facebook at helder.emily and at my website, emilyhelder.com. There, you can sign up for my newsletter for the latest on adoption research and practice. Thanks for joining us.